morning. It's good to be here with you. I'm going to change my glasses. I won't be able to see you as well whether you're sleeping or not, but I'll be able to see my notes better. So a couple of you are a little safer now. I'm, oh, can't see you now. Turn to um, Acts chapter 21. And uh, someone asked me this morning, well, <clears throat> what's our next series? Uh, what book are we going to next? And uh, Jared and Lee and I, we haven't really sat down and decided uh, exactly which direction Jared's thinking about going, so he'll let you know next week if he's ready. But we're coming to the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He's traveled the entire eastern end of the Roman Empire, and he's headed for Jerusalem, maybe even for just a while, to focus on his people, the Jews. Paul is also getting ready to travel to Rome and bring the gospel to the capital of the empire. Chapter 21 begins here in verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them, well, from the Ephesian elders, then Luke finishes verse 1 with a list of cities from Miletus along the southbound route that he's headed toward Jerusalem. These are all port cities on what's called today the Turkish Riviera or the turquoise coast in southwest Turkey. Paul and his entourage are skipping along the coast. They're looking for passage on a larger ship that will cross the Mediterranean and get them to Israel. Luke says, And we set sail, running a straight course we came to Kos. You can see it there on the map. The following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Now, I'm assuming this is like a milk run. They're going from port to port, delivering goods and passengers. In verse 2, they finally board this larger ship. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When they had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed in the town of Tyre. And there the ship was to unload her cargo. Well, they must have been on a freighter. Paul is leaving the elders of Ephesus after spending two years ministering with them in the church, in their community, and the whole area of Asia. Verse 4, And finding disciples, we stayed there several days. Now, that's an interesting statement. He lands in the city of Tyre, and he starts looking for disciples. He's out and about looking for people to fellowship with. And I think that's a lesson for us today. Uh, you talk to some people who come to Open Gate and they say, the friendliest church we've ever been in. And then there are some who come for years and still feel a stranger. Well, what's the difference? Well, those who really get plugged in, like Paul, can find other disciples. Whereas if you don't get involved in some way, you can sit back and wait to be found. One cure for this, 
Pastor Lee's already talked about here at Open Gate, is to get involved in a life group. So we have sign-ups out in the, uh, not the foyer, but outside on, on the table. And Pastor Ted will be back there helping you get signed up. Be like Paul. Reach out and find other disciples right here at Open Gate. I've always told people, if you want to make friends, what? Be friendly. That's right, exactly. So finishing verse 4, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Well, we come again to this age-old argument. Should Paul be going to Jerusalem or not? And I like what Dr. Walbert of Dallas Seminary says. I've got it up here. You can read it. The words through the Spirit in verse 4 mean that they knew through the Spirit that Paul would suffer in Jerusalem. Therefore, concerned for his safety, they tried to dissuade him. When When we had come to the end of those days, Luke says... We departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us, accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and we prayed. When, they had taken our, when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. It's beginning to be true that wherever Paul is, There are believers scattered across the entire region that borders the Mediterranean Sea, from Troas to Tyre, from Antioch to Jerusalem. It didn't take Paul long to find these other disciples. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea. Paul and his companions, they're back in God's promised land, ready to make it to Jerusalem in time to be at the Feast of Pentecost. Finishing verse 8, Luke says that they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. So I want to ask, who is this Philip and who are the seven? In earlier days, as the mother church in Jerusalem began to grow, and as the famine was affecting the poor of the city, the elders were approached about a problem that needed to be corrected within the church family. Remember back in Acts chapter 6, we read here in verse 1, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied. Well, let me stop there just a moment. It's encouraging to trace the growth of the church in the first few chapters of Acts. Uh, 3,000 believed during Peter's first sermon in chapter 2, verse 41. Then in the same chapter, it says believers were added daily. The church grew to 5,000 men plus women and children in chapter 4, verse 4. Then this number multiplies again in chapter 6, verse 1. And then if we read on in verse 7, it multiplies against greatly, again greatly. Well, what was the secret of this amazing growth? Even though Peter and the other apostles were warned and they were beaten for their preaching out in the 
open in, in the public back in Acts chapter 5. After their release, we see in verses 41 and 42 of chapter 5, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So we come to our first idea in the back of the bulletin. You know, we put these ideas in the back of the bulletin. I call them thoughts for you to apply to your life or to think about during the week. Take them home with you. Number one, not only were the apostles and the elders of the church willing to pay any price to serve Jesus, but all the people lived their faith daily. Acts 5.42 is a good pattern for us to follow. We see Christian service in the community and in God's house happening daily, as well as care for each other from house to house. And not only were they ministering to each other, but the whole church was focusing on the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. They were praising Jesus and lifting Him up. Well, this brings me to my second point of application. Godly pastors and officers, elders, deacons alone cannot make a church grow. Every member must do his or her part, sharing your God-given gift. Did you know? (laughs) That's right. What? We're all ministers. Well, back to Philip in chapter 6 of Acts. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Well, we've got two groups going on here. Because their widows were neglected, the Hellenists, their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, these Hellenists, they were Greek-speaking Jewish people. They had a a background of Greek culture, while the Hebrew believers in Jerusalem closely followed the culture of the Old Testament. This difference of culture and language caused misunderstandings and oversights to develop, and that left the Hellenist... um, Widows without food. Well, this problem became critical. As we studied weeks ago from Acts chapter 6, the apostles come up with a solution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and they said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Well, you see, the backbone of this growing church in Jerusalem Some think at this point there's over 25,000 believers here in Jerusalem. It was the teaching of the Word. Applying the truths of the Old Testament to the New Testament church ministry, as well as the apostles receiving new truth as the Holy Spirit inspired them and gifted their words. These men are gifted by the Spirit to lead God's people and to teach God's Word. Under their leadership, the body of believers need to seek out other men who are gifted in the ministry of service to others. Well, the next verse, 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, 
full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Well, back in chapter 21, it tells us about Philip. They entered the house, finishing verse 8, of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and they stayed with him. Well, Philip of Caesarea is one of the seven men of good report, of good reputation, chosen and appointed to serve these Grecian widows. But his gifts are more than just of those seven uh, deacons. In chapter 8, we see where he leads a revival in Samaria. And then most of you remember, he dashes out to the desert just in time to lead an Ethiopian to Christ. Philip has the gift of evangelism. We find that next in verse 9, Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. J. Vernon McGee, he was pastor of Church of the Open Door and a, a professor at Biola University. He tells us, This verse shows that women did occupy a prominent place in the church. These particular women had the gift of prophecy. The New Testament had not been written as yet, so the gift of prophecy was needed in the early church. Verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews do at Jerusalem. They'll bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Well, this really interests me, because as we'll see in the next chapter, the Jews wanted to actually kill Paul, They didn't want to just hand him over to the Gentiles, the the Roman soldiers. Instead, though, a commander of the garrison intervenes for Paul. Agabus doesn't say that Paul will be killed, but that the Jews in Jerusalem will hand him over to the Gentiles. It also interests me that Agabus is acting like an Old Testament prophet. He's using an object lesson to make his point. He acts it out using Paul's belt. So he goes theatrical. He grabs Paul's belt and turns it into handcuffs. Verse 12. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. They keep pleading with Paul. Don't go, Paul. It's dangerous. Don't go. Well, Can you see in in verse 12 that even Luke joins this plea? He says, we, here in verse 12. But the apostle would not be dissuaded. Then Paul answered. He says this. What do you mean by weeping? I mean, they're serious about this. And breaking my heart. That's interesting. And breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be bound but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Truly, Paul believes God has a divine appointment for him in Jerusalem. And it breaks his heart to think that these folks aren't united with him as God calls him to Jerusalem. 
the fact that Paul was warned before going to every city that he would that he went to that he would be in in danger. The, the book of Acts points this out. That helps us to understand the situation here in verse 21. It says, though God has warned Paul before each dangerous situation he entered. It's kind of like Paul is a one-man, first-century mission impossible. I can hear the voice coming from his little tape recorder. Paul, your mission, if you choose to accept it. Well, anyway, Paul was given clear warning. But he chose to accept the mission he was given. Paul is willing to die for the name of Jesus. He's called by the Lord to preach to the Gentiles. That's true. But he has a powerful, compelling place in his heart for his own people. The Holy Spirit has given Paul clear direction about traveling to Jerusalem. Back in Acts 19, we read this statement from Paul. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 20, and we see, Now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He believed it was God's divine appointment. Paul knew that at Pentecost there would be a gathering of Jews from all over the Roman Empire. There was put in his heart a great hunger to be there. So Luke records Paul's thoughts or maybe even his motive for hurrying to Jerusalem for skipping some other ministry he could have done. Luke writes, in Acts chapter 20, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that, he would not, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Well, first of all, it's difficult for us as Gentiles to understand this emotion in, in the Apostle Paul. He was a Jew, And as a Jew, he loved his nation. He loved their heritage and the background and their possession of God's promises we find in the Old Testament. Paul loved all the ritual and ceremony which had been given to them to teach them about the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah who would fulfill each and every word of what those observances and rituals stood for. He longed to reach them. His heart, we find in the scripture, his heart was literally broken as he saw their bitterness and frustration and the hostility and opposition they had to the cause of Jesus. He writes to the church at Rome how heartbroken he was for his people. He says in chapter 9, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, if it would make the difference. My countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And Paul knew that at Pentecost there would be a gathering of Jews from all over the Roman Empire. 
This was his perfect opportunity to spread the gospel story throughout the diaspora to every Jewish community scattered throughout the empire. He's ready to attempt what I would call his Pentecost crusade, kind of like Billy Graham. Paul believes he can preach to hundreds, even thousands, as they come from every region of the empire. All this in one short week during the Feast of Pentecost. We also know that Paul was headed toward Jerusalem. Uh, He was carrying the offering he gathered for the poor, for the hungry believers that are living there. He wanted to make this presentation of money in order to fortify one of his basic doctrines. Here's something Paul taught time and time again. The unity of all believers. The unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ. He said this to the Ephesians in chapter 2. For through Christ we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers. He's talking to the Gentiles, the Ephesians. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with the Jews, with the Jewish saints, and members of the household of God. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, like most of us do when people don't do what we want, the will of the Lord be done. And the disciples, they understood the warning. It was a prohibition to them. But Paul understood that God was just giving him a sense of what was coming. You see, a warning can be discerned by some people as a mere caution. For other people, it's a stop sign. He was certainly not disobeying the influence of the Holy Spirit. Rather, with great faith and courage, he accepted the Spirit's mission. Our friend Sandy Adams from Georgia says, here's a lesson for us. It's actually our third point on the back of the bulletin. I believe Paul's pals had the right approach. They disagreed with their leader. They were not afraid to let him know. They were quite verbal, yet... When he rejected their advice, they submitted to his authority, trusted God to guide him, and they still followed. And we'll see in the next verse that they even helped Paul pack as he gets ready to go. And after those days, it says in verse 15, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. An early disciple. I I thought about that for some time. What is an early disciple? Well, so let me speculate on the meaning of an early disciple. Manasseh, I think, was a follower of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, he may have sat and listened to the Savior when he visited his, his relatives in Israel. He's from Cyprus. But he visited his, his, his relatives. He heard Jesus speak, and he decided, I want to stay, and I want to listen to this man of God. Uh, perhaps 
He stayed long enough and he was watching the crucifixion of Jesus taking place on the hill of Golgotha. Watching from the safety of the city where this picture was taken. This hill just outside the city is identified in Mark's gospel from the shape of the caves that are there in the side of the hill as the place of the skull. Mark 15 says, And they brought him, Jesus, to the place of, called Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. This picture is of a hill, as I said, just outside the walls of old Jerusalem. It's called Gordon's Calvary. First pointed out by General Charles Gordon, he was a well-known British soldier who came to live near Jerusalem in 1882. Okay, He identified this location as the place of the skull. In Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. In Latin, we call it Calvary. Around the corner from this was an ancient tomb which he believed was the empty tomb of Christ. You can see the eye sockets of the skull more clearly as I enlarge this slide. When I took this picture uh, back in 1974, we could see Muslim graves there on top of the hill. Just a personal note. When I took this picture, I was standing on the wall by the old Damascus gate of Jerusalem, as only I can do, imagining I was standing in the very footprints of General Gordon when he discovered the site in 1898. What you see at the bottom is a modern bus terminal at the foot of the hill. I believe that the Lord allowed the Muslim cemetery to be put there to keep anyone from building on Calvary's old rugged hill or even from leveling it for a modern construction site. That's just my thought. Number three, I think Manasseh was one of the many disciples recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians who saw Jesus after the resurrection. He was an early disciple. Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Manasseh is one of those who remain and testify even that day when they met him of Jesus' resurrection. And number four, might as well go all the way, he may have even been present in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended into heaven. Manasseh was an early disciple, a charter member of the early church. On to verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul is giving this missions report to the mother church in Jerusalem. Luke doesn't tell us, but Paul must also at this point and in the presence of the elders hand over the large offering he and his companions are carrying from the Gentile uh, churches for the saints here in Jerusalem. Verse 20, And when they heard it, the report, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. Well, he's starting to give 
Paul a little warning here. There are many, we said probably a church of 25,000, but there are many who are zealous for the law, but they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they brought that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Well, we have some fake news here, don't we? While there was rejoicing over Paul's report, there was apprehension about the reputation Paul was getting from these legalistic Jewish believers. This description of these believing Jews leads me to think that they were in disagreement with James and the council about the Gentiles' salvation. And perhaps, having accepted Jesus as their Savior and their Messiah, they also seek with their Old Testament fervor of the law the approval of the, of the Pharisees and the priests that are there in Jerusalem. Well, a patently false report has gone out concerning Paul. It was true Paul taught Gentiles that it was unnecessary to circumcise their sons. And true, he did not teach these new Gentile believers to observe any Jewish customs. However, if you read his letters, Paul never taught Jews not to circumcise their sons or to disregard the Mosaic laws or customs. So James continues in verse 22, What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So the assembly must be the entire leadership of the church in Jerusalem, perhaps even consisting of elders from other churches in nearby uh, communities. James is telling Paul, These zealous Jewish believers will be offended when they see you. To show them that you can be trusted, here's what you need to do, and all of us will back you up. So verse 23, Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things which they, which they were informed concerning you are nothing. Now, these are poor people. Paul has brought this offering. And he's saying this is going to take a week for them to go through this rite of purification. So they're going to lose work. So you can pay for this if you'll do that. And he's saying this because they were uh, the things which were informed are nothing. It's fake news, as I said. But that you yourself, can, they can see that you also walk orderly and keep the law. Paul, we know the rumors aren't true, but these men need to see it with their own eyes. Paul does walk orderly. We know that from reading his, his epistles. But he doesn't keep the law for the same reasons or in the same manner as these zealous, law-keeping believers do. Paul teaches that the law by itself can actually only produce death. 
He says that to the Corinthians in the chapter 3. For the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's taught, and we read in his letter to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, not of any works, lest anyone should boast. Number four on the back of the bulletin, we're saved by God's grace, therefore in gratitude we desire to keep God's commands. We don't keep God's commands to be saved. That's like, uh, do I even need to say it? Putting the cart before the horse. But that's the bottom line with legalism back then and today. Because of guilt and shame and some even out of pride, they start thinking as a child of God, our sinful nature can undo and overpower God's grace. They become leery to extend God's grace and forgiveness to other people, even those they love, afraid that these people will take advantage of God. And this brings us to our fifth point in the bulletin. The legalist believes in limited grace, given only to those who deserve it. We believe in God's unlimited grace because of His love. Paul tells us in Romans 5, starting with verse 20, I love this verse. No, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the law was given to make us aware, maybe even much more aware of our sin. But we're saved by grace. But anywhere, anytime, in any way that God's child sins or breaks the law, grace abounds much more. This is one of the much mores we find in the Scriptures. I've made a focus on the much mores of the New Testament as part of our food for thought on what I call the greenies, the insert in your bulletin. I hope you'll take the time this week to think through how much more God loves you and me. Much more than you and I can imagine. You see, the much mores of Scripture point us to God's grace, God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, forgiveness, and love to you and I. Brings us to number six. In the bulletin, legalism believes that God is merciful to the sinner, but that he's hard and harsh on the Christian if we sin. Legalism will always tie God's love to our performance. True, God disciplines us as his children, but he always, always, always disciplines us in love. Paul keeps God's commands out of love and thankfulness, not like these nitpicking Jewish believers do out of obligation or fear. Nor 
does Paul keep the Sabbath as these do? Jesus, Paul says, is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. Jesus, the Messiah, has come. He's the one who gave the the Sabbath. He's the one that the Sabbath looked toward. Jesus, number seven on our bulletin, is the Sabbath rest of God's children. We can rest in what? The finished work of Jesus on the cross. His work validated by His resurrection. And I think in His presence in our hearts. You see, Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 12, for the Son of Man, talking about Himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Number eight, for you and me, every day should be a Sabbath, a day of rest in Jesus. You see, Jesus told us in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath. These legalist Christians focused on God's mercy, all right, but they're leery of God's grace. They can't let go of the past of how we've always done it. They hold on to a sense of pride in their Jewish history. And I think this was one of the problems that they had. Jesus had been among them. Jesus had died for them. But they weren't focusing on Jesus. They were caught up in the rituals that pointed to Jesus. That's like being in love with the photograph instead of the young woman. You see, the focus, I guess a question I want to ask, what is the focus of your Christian life? I've got three blanks there. Is your focus the church? Some people say we're bibliocentric. Is your focus the Bible? No, what is our focus? Jesus. Our focus is Jesus. Jesus is not only our Sabbath rest. He is our rock. He is our constant companion. These men are critical of Paul with his focus on the Gentile world, and his total focus on Jesus. But James and the council have spoken. James repeats the council's decision for the Gentile believers once more in verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So Paul is willing to follow the request of James and the other leaders in Jerusalem. After all, he already stated, we we think he wrote this letter from Ephesus before he got to Jerusalem. He's already stated in his first letter to the church in Corinth, to the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do, For the gospel's sake. You see, Paul desires the unity of the fellowship. 
Verse 26, Then Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration or completion of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Now when the seven men were almost ended, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, here they come, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Well, I'm going to end with this conspiracy that I see. Number one, we have the Jewish believers zealous for the law and the Old Testament rituals. They're joining in. These are the Christians who were out-argued and outvoted concerning legal issues for the Gentiles. They can't agree with or go along with the decision that the leadership has made. It's even been suggested that they're in thick with my next group, the Pharisees, because their Old Testament legalistic view of Christianity isn't such a bother to the local Jewish leadership. So number two, in the conspiracy, we have the Old Testament Pharisees and the priests of the temple who are tired of hearing Paul. Remember, Paul to them is Saul the traitor, rubbing the message of the way in their noses. And number three, we have the Jews from Asia. You guys come on up with the worship team. We have the Jews from Asia here for the Feast of Pentecost. They're seeing their nemesis of their hometown synagogues. Here he is in Jerusalem, daring to darken the door of the temple itself. So this mob forms and chaos ensues. And next week, Jared will give you the rest of the story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. You are God the Son. You are the Savior. You are our Sabbath, our rest. We can rest that you will do your work by your Spirit in our lives. So, Lord, we seek to worship you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and worship with us as we sing this song together. for um, being with us this morning. We're glad to have you here. Come up and pray with one of us if you'd like to. Have a great day today. God bless you.